Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Kevin Gastola, editor of the Dissenter Newsletter, who discusses WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange's last battle to stop his extradition from the United Kingdom to stand trial in the U.S., where he faces up to 175 years in prison. James Hyatt, founder of the Louisiana group For a Better Bayou, who speaks at a climate rally at the Hartford Insurance Company in Connecticut, demanding they end their coverage of liquefied natural gas export terminals. And Theodore Hamm, associate professor of journalism and new media studies at St. Joseph's University in New York, who examines new developments in the investigation into who killed Malcolm X 59 years ago. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Tens of thousands of people flooded the streets of Mexico City on February 18th to protest what they say are threats to the independence of the National Election Institute, or INE, ahead of the nation's presidential election on June 2nd. Polls show outgoing President Andrés Manuel López Obrador remains very popular, and the candidate of his ruling Morena party, Claudia Scheinbaum, is leading opposition candidate Xochitl Galvez by a two-to-one margin. Opposition parties organized the protests after López Obrador, known as AMLO, sent a set of INE reform proposals to Congress as part of a package of broader constitutional reforms. The proposed INE reforms include staff and budget cuts, as well as requiring electoral judges to be elected by popular vote. AMLO alleges the INE helped engineer his electoral defeats in 2006 and 2012 and has attacked Mexico's judiciary, accusing judges of being part of a conservative conspiracy against his progressive government. Before the protest, AMLO blasted opposition parties, which include the PRI, that ruled Mexico as a one-party state for 70 uninterrupted years, accusing them of calling the demonstration to defend corruption, although they say that they care about democracy. Each January, the Kansas Geological Survey inspects water wells to find out how far water levels have dropped in rural communities. This is part of the vital annual inspection of the Ogallala Aquifer, which stretches under eight states from South Dakota to Texas. The aquifer is the largest store of underground fresh water in the United States and is often the only reliable fresh water source for cities and agriculture. For decades, states have allowed farmers to overpump groundwater to irrigate corn and other crops that would otherwise struggle on the arid high plains. The steep drop in the aquifer's water levels are a threat to many farms and small cities dependent on agriculture. Kansas Democratic Governor Laura Kelly acknowledges some communities are just a generation away from running out of water. In northwest Kansas, some farmers have voluntarily cut their water use by 20 percent, implementing a five-year conservation plan. 
but the agricultural industry has largely pushed back against aggressive water restrictions. However, voluntary measures haven't saved enough water, which could eventually lead to strict state water conservation mandates. Some 100 million people in the U.S. are burdened by health care debt, and medical collection cases clog courtrooms across the country. Most cases involving collection of medical debt go uncontested. However, in recent years, major health systems in Virginia, North Carolina, and elsewhere have stopped suing patients following news reports about the growing number of lawsuits. Barnraiser Media and KFF Health News recently profiled the medical debt crisis in McAllister, Oklahoma, with a population of 18,000 residents. There, the local hospital's debt collection machine operated quietly for many years, supported by powerful people in town. In McAllister, like in much of America, the lawsuits have provided business for some, such as the local collection agency and a lawyer who sues patients on behalf of the hospital. But for many patients and their families, the lawsuits can take a devastating toll, sapping wages, emptying retirement accounts, and upending lives. In 2021, an effort to limit hospital lawsuits was rejected by Oklahoma's legislature, where Republicans have a supermajority in both the State House and Senate. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. for WikiLeaks co-founder Julian Assange are waging what's likely his last fight to avoid extradition from the United Kingdom to the U.S., where he'd stand trial, facing up to 175 years in prison. Assange, who's been held in Belmarsh High Security Prison since 2019, didn't attend two days of hearings before Britain's High Court February 20th and 21st due to ill health. Assange is wanted by U.S. authorities for WikiLeaks' publication of hundreds of thousands of classified Pentagon documents and diplomatic cables in 2010 and 2011 that exposed U.S. war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan, in addition to embarrassing diplomatic abuses. In the hearing, Edward Fitzgerald, one of Assange's lawyers, declared that in prosecuting his client, the U.S. government was seeking to criminalize ordinary journalistic practices. Your reporter spoke with Kevin Gastola, editor and publisher of the Dissenter newsletter and author. Here he discusses the status of Julian Assange's fight against extradition and why many believe his prosecution poses a grave threat to investigative journalism and freedom of the press. We're waiting for a decision from an appeals court in the UK that's called the British High Court of Justice. They've actually already heard an issue in this case, and they ruled against Julian Assange. The U.S. government appealed to them back in 2021 after a district judge ruled that it would be oppressive to extradite Julian Assange to the U.S. for mental health reasons. Finally, Julian Assange got to go before this court last week and argue 
that uh, a number of violations of his rights would occur if he was extradited and put those issues of freedom of the press and issues of uh, retaliation against him for his political opinions before the court to really challenge the core aspects of this political case. So now we wait to see if any of that was persuasive enough to convince the high court to grant a full appeal hearing. And if they decide that none of the grounds for appeal are legitimate, he has no more options in the UK. He can appeal to what is known as the European Court of Human Rights, but that'll take some time. Uh, And it's not a guarantee that they will take his petition if he were to submit one. It pretty much means if uh, the European Court of Human Rights says no, that he will be extradited to the U.S. And so then it's on us, I believe, as Americans particularly, to truly consider what is at stake when the U.S. government is putting a publisher on trial in this unprecedented manner. And Kevin, I did want to ask you about, you know, this this core issue of freedom of the press. It's true that the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Guardian all published parts of the WikiLeaks documents. The Obama administration at the time opted not to charge Julian Assange because they had good relations with these newspapers. But the Trump administration did charge Julian Assange, and that's why we are where we are now. But the Biden administration, of course, has an option not to proceed with these charges, but of course they haven't. Tell us a little bit about what you know is going on here and what the Biden administration's objective is in continuing to press these charges against Julian Assange, against widespread criticism about that very issue of press freedom. What you're asking me goes to the heart of the argument that was made before the High Court of Justice about why this extradition should be rejected. It's because it's politically motivated. Uh, The law is not being evenly applied. The Obama administration did a test to figure out if they could apply the Espionage Act to Julian Assange, and they determined it would be unfair. Uh, Because if they did, they would then have to charge the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Guardian that published the documents. They cared about these First Amendment issues, or they at least thought they were enough to uh, curtail how far they went in pursuing Julian Assange. With Biden in office now, he inherited this prosecution and has decided not to abandon it, even though it does not match up with the principles that he would have supported when he was vice president in Obama's administration. Well, Kevin, we're almost out of time. And I I wanted to ask you, I think, the key question here. With this prosecution of Julian Assange for publishing government secrets, what's at stake here for freedom of the press with the precedent that's being set, whether or not Julian Assange is extradited to the United States, whether or not he stands trial whether or not he's found guilty. What's the precedent here that worries you and and other journalists? The president is saying that anybody around the world can be extradited to the United States and put on trial, particularly journalists, which then gives a green light to any country with any regional power. 
say if they want to control their state secrets and assert power. Actually, Vladimir Putin right now has a Wall Street Journal reporter in detention named Evan Gerskovich that Biden's been spending a lot of time trying to get released. Putin's argument for keeping him in detention is not that much different from the argument Biden and the Justice Department are making for keeping Julian Assange in jail and pursuing extradition. If you just go domestically to wrap it up, we're talking about undermining the First Amendment and everything that has allowed for um, open publication of information. And also the Justice Department is deciding who is and is not a journalist. The reason why they believe they can go after Julian Assange is simply by categorizing as something else, categorizing him as an, a hacker or maybe even some kind of a, an anarchist who doesn't care about the law. And I think that's really dangerous that the Justice Department gets to just pursue somebody and just quickly say, OK, they're not a journalist. We have the freedom to go after and prosecute that person. That was Kevin Gostola, publisher of the Dissenter newsletter and author of the book, Guilty of Journalism, The Political Case Against Julian Assange. Find a link to The Dissenter and more commentary on the U.S. prosecution of Julian Assange by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. 67 climate crisis protest actions were organized around the world by the group Stop the Money Pipeline on February 26th, calling for insurance companies to end their coverage of liquefied natural gas or LNG export terminals. The U.S. Gulf Coast, especially southwest Louisiana, is already home to several LNG export facilities, and more are planned. Between the gas that's fracked to supply the terminals, the process of cooling down the gas to a liquid state for export, and then the warming of the liquid back to a gas for consumption in other countries, LNG is by far the most destructive fossil fuel. In terms of climate impact, LNG emissions are also highly toxic. Hartford, Connecticut, was once and perhaps is still the insurance capital of the world. Protesters gathered there outside the offices of the Hartford Insurance Company on February 26th and rallied with two leaders of the fight against LNG projects from southwest Louisiana, Roy Shetta Ozane and James Hyatt, founder of the group For a Better Bayou. They traveled to Connecticut hoping to arrange a meeting with the Hartford CEO, Christopher Swift, but both were denied entrance. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhus was at the protest and presents an excerpt of Hyatt's talk at the rally. We're here at the Hartford specifically because they already insure Cameron LNG, uh, a facility that it was built with taxpayer money, built because it was for uh, import at the time in 2007. But then it turns out that we have all of this gas if we frack and, and tear up the land in West Texas. And that's what they started doing in 2007. And so the Hartford has been playing a part in this uh, Cameron LNG for years, for over a decade now, right? They've been underwriting and these fossil fuels that have been in our communities. The leukemia rates for children who live around frack sites are two to three times higher. We know this. And, and for some reason, we continue down this pathway that has afflicted communities for decades, our dependency, our collective dependency on fossil fuels has led us into this climate change crisis. And it has also been the reason why we have environmental justice communities where people die of cancer, unnecessary suffering inflicted on mostly black and brown and low income communities and have for decades. 
all around this country, not just in Southwest Louisiana. We have a lot there. Companies like the Hartford, Cameron LNG, Tellurian, Lake Charles LNG, all of these companies tell us that it's clean and it's green. What they don't tell you is that all of the gas is coming from frac sites and inflicting a continuation of our, our reliance on fossil fuels that causes premature death and suffering and has for decades. We were afflicted in 2020 by two hurricanes six weeks apart, followed by a winter storm Uri in the February of 21, followed by just a random Monday in May that flooded our town worse than any of that. You cannot insure and continue insuring the climate chaos. The insurance rates in, by, in South Louisiana are $16,000 a year for a $150,000 house. That doesn't make any sense. You cannot afford to pay for your house insurance. But somehow, companies like the Hartford can, can somehow afford to insure the exact cause of the climate crisis that is, that is driving the home prices up like that, the house insurance prices. We have so many people here and in this country that know our collective dependency on fossil fuels is what has driven us to this point. And we do know that it doesn't matter what, what it looks like. The chemical that we pull up from the ground, if it's coal, if it's oil, if it's gas, if it's carbon that was buried underground and we're adding it to the atmosphere, that is driving the climate chaos. That is causing suffering around the world, not just in Southwest Louisiana, more and more communities. And we are at the tipping point where we know better and we have got to get companies like the Hartford to be ethical and stop ensuring the thing that is causing climate chaos. You can stop insuring fossil fuels today. Today. And maybe my children and the future generations that come behind us will not have to endure the mass suffering that you are ensuring will happen by continuing to ensure fossil fuel dependency. If we know better, and we do, we know better, we know that continued fossil fuel dependency will drive us past a livable planet. It, there will be mass suffering if we do not do something different, and we know that. And for some reason, greed, and I gotta get mine, maybe you can get yours later, this idea, this American exceptionalism, that somehow we're gonna out-engineer this thing that we've caused by continuing to double down on the exact extraction of fossil fuels and dependency on it. There's no reason the Hartford needs to ensure those companies or any companies that are tied to fossil fuel dependency. We are at the moment where they should be ensuring renewables and helping to, yeah. helping to move into yeah. the future so we do have an opportunity for our descendants to have a livable planet. That was James Hyatt a native of southwest Louisiana and founder of the group For a Better Bayou. Learn more about the fight to stop expansion of LNG export terminals in the U.S. by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. It's been almost six decades since U.S. civil rights and black nationalist leader Malcolm X was assassinated 
just before he was to deliver a speech at New York City's Audubon Ballroom. On the 59th anniversary of Malcolm's February 21, 1965 death, nationally known civil rights attorney Ben Crump announced he had two new witnesses in the investigation who were tasked with providing security for Malcolm X on the day of his murder, but were detained by police one week earlier in what they charged was a conspiracy by the New York Police Department and FBI to ensure Malcolm's planned assassination would be successful. Two years ago, a $40 million lawsuit was filed on behalf of Mohammed Aziz, who was wrongfully convicted in the assassination of Malcolm X and exonerated in 2021. The lawsuit against the federal government charges that the FBI concealed evidence that would have proved Aziz's innocence at the time of his trial. Aziz, who spent more than 20 years in prison, was released in 1985, as was Khalil Islam, also wrongfully convicted of Malcolm's murder. Islam died in 2009. Your reporter spoke with Theodore Hamm, Associate Professor and Chair of Journalism and New Media Studies at St. Joseph's University in New York. Here he discusses his December 2023 independent article titled, Who Killed Malcolm X? New lawsuit points to untapped sources of information, as well as recent developments in the case. Your listeners may have heard of the other lawsuit that's in motion that was filed on behalf of Malcolm X's daughters, his four living daughters. Ilyasa Shabazz is the most prominent spokesperson of the family. And that's filed by Ben Crump, the high-profile attorney from Manhattan. But that's a separate suit, a separate case. So that is on behalf of the family. Um, and we'll see where that goes, whether the statute of limitations, that's an issue uh, because it's a wrongful death suit. In any case, the, the exoneration suit for Muhammad Aziz and Khalil Islam, the two men who were exonerated, Khalil Islam has since passed away. So anyway, so this is a, it's a uh, $40 million suit, as you said. It's a wrongful prosecution, wrongful imprisonment. The catalyst was the Manhattan DA's office under Cyrus Vance. On his way out in 2021, he had opted not to run again. And, you know, Cyrus Vance wasn't known to be <laughs> being radical. Of any pre- he was more known for not prosecuting Donald Trump than anything else. Uh, but uh, in any case, it's kind of caught people by surprise when he all of a sudden, six weeks before leaving office, he exonerates Aziz and, and Islam for their convictions in the 1965 murder. And this is something that's been widely viewed as a, as a miscarriage of justice ever since including by the third person convicted uh, at the time who was telling prosecutors, et cetera, that, no, these two guys had nothing to do with it. But that wasn't good enough. Um, And so what what Vance exposed was that the FBI was withholding significant amounts of information about the investigation. And it went up all the way to J. Edgar Hoover, who ordered multiple witnesses not to tell police or prosecutors that they were, in fact, FBI informants. And a number that's come out is that it's nine informants. They had nine informants in the Audubon ballroom on the day of the assassination. And what Vance revealed was that Hoover was telling, telling the, his, his agents not to inform the FBI. Uh, also, of the, the, the lead shooter, William Bradley, everyone pretty much agrees at this point that he was the lead shooter, not convicted. And he was protected by Hoover. Um, And so that's a key component of this lawsuit. Professor Hamm, 
Investigators and researchers have long suspected the involvement of both the FBI and CIA in Malcolm X's assassination. Tell us about those suspicions and the role of the FBI's infamous COINTELPRO program, counterintelligence program, that targeted the civil rights and indigenous rights, as well as the anti-Vietnam War movements. In the lawsuit, it raises a, it's trying to establish a pattern of COINTELPRO operations. So COINTELPRO was infiltrating various radical movements, FBI operatives, were either informants or they were agent provocateurs. Clearly had their, their tentacles spread far and wide, and they were present in a lot of the radical movements of the late 60s. But it wasn't revealed until the early 70s. There's the famous moment of the break-in that occurred on the, the night of one of the um, Ali Frazier fights in suburban Philadelphia, where anti-war activists raided an FBI office and uh, removed a lot of documents. And a reporter named Betty Metzger for the Washington Post found one of the documents to have, had the name of this uh, something about Cointelpro, right? and it wasn't clear what it was. But as it came out uh, throughout the 70s, it was a very extensive network of FBI infiltration. There's a lot of a lot of legal fights and countless hours have gone into these cases to try to uncover and expose the reality of what the federal government was doing in these in trying to undermine these various radical movements during this period. Why is it important to expose those who orchestrated or carried out the murder of Malcolm X today in 2024? Obviously, Hoover. You know, we want to know what his role was. Another person that I haven't mentioned was Mark Felt, who was a higher up with Hoover, who became the key player in uh, Watergate, leaks in Watergate. That's all important to know who did what, and but I think it's more about the agency accountability, right? So that we know that this is what the FBI was doing at that point in our history. I mean, obviously it raises questions about what they've been doing since, but we got to look at each period uh, in its own light. Certainly left a lasting legacy uh, in terms of curtailing the radical movements of the period. But clearly the Aziz case is already in motion and is the type of case that commonly does get uh, adjudicated in, in, a, in a federal court. Uh, there's, there's many different scenarios that could play out. But the ideal scenario, of course, would be that we get we get transparency about what the what the FBI did and who they were collaborating with. Was the CIA part of that? Uh, what were the exact discussions between the FBI and the NYPD, uh, and so on? You know, it would be great from a historian's perspective. Be something that would be a revelation to us all to get full disclosure of what happened. That was Theodore Ham associate professor and chair of journalism and new media studies at St. Joseph's University in New York. Find a link to his article titled, Who Killed Malcolm X? New lawsuit points to untapped sources of information, as well as related developments in the case, by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. 
Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org. There you can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WBCR in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, KTAL in Las Cruces, New Mexico, KODX in Seattle, Washington, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.